It's Monday, August 30th, and you've got Oz in your ears. We're marching, marching to Chevrolet with the eagle and the sword. We're praising Zion till her death, until we meet our last reward, our Lord's reward. His beard our mighty mane We'll go marching, marching to Omaha With the buckram and the corn You'll hear us boom a state Ha ha! As we cross the final horn The flaming horn Zion, almighty Zion Your bison now are dust As your cornflakes rise against the rust Thank you, thank you. That was the sound of our guest ensemble, the St. Louis Aquarium Choir. Hello, dear friends. I'm Assistant Pastor Hurley Barflyer here at the One Way Light Church in Tipping Point, Washington. We are gathered in the Hello Kitty Sanctuary to give thanks for all we have taken from others and to take back the world where that can happen again. I now have the pleasure of bringing to the pulpit a man whose books and tapes have inspired us all. He's on a national megachurch tour promoting his new book, From Zero Sum to Dim Sum. Welcome, Cubby Vineline. Well, thank you, Hurley, and thanks for the gift of my beautiful birth certificate necklace here. If only our so-called president would wear one around his neck, then we could all put away the terrible fear that he is the reincarnation of Saladin, the seed of Islam, risen from the tar sands of Araby to build a mosque upon the White House, turn us from west to east, from pork to lamb, from urban... Two turbans! I look at my watch and ask myself, is it too late? I open the door on an empty future and wonder aloud, in this great struggle to regain our eternal prosperity and unquestioned dominance, need we fight alone? No! 1.3 billion pagans stand ready to join us in this glorious crusade. But 
man, this is the butt we have to sit on and think this through. But we can't ask the hungry multitudes of the Middle Kingdom to sacrifice for us unless we are willing to sacrifice for them. We consume 25 times the resources they do, and while I think we definitely deserve it, we're going to have to cut back until together we own the world. See this bag? It's filled with egg rolls, sweet and sour pork, mushu beef and orange chicken. Take out taken from the very mouths that will join us in the mighty mission. I say to you, I say to you, no more takeout. No more takeout until we've taken our muscle cars back from the muscle men. No more Chinese food until all the Chinese have food. Please join me now. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till Ah, the sound of Japanese disco turns me on, Dave, and reminds me that we can stay alive for 75. Dave, this is our 75th fresh radio friage show wow i mean really wow hey uh dave maloney i, I, w- I want you to cue the fireworks please the, the chinese celebration the whole thing the gongs it got it okay hit it yeah well well anyway you're, you're gonna have to imagine <laughs> and maybe it'll come later who knows maybe asking too much but yeah see we started on the 22nd of april right earth day and the earth is still here and here is the 30th of August, 75 shows, not including the best of the best, all the compilations. This am the fresh stuff, right? That's 75 hours. Yeah, it's a French 75. Now, there's a reference most people will shake their heads Let's at. Let's see. Right? It's a kind of a drink. Well, what did the drink come from? Uh, a kind of a cannon. Right. Howitzer. The French 75 was the French uh, howitzer during World War One, and then they served this cocktail at, at whoever's, uh, and it was champagne with brandy in the hollow stem. It was a French 75. They just blow your head off or something like it. Department of Obscure Facts. Well, all of this wonderful history just slipping away. That's one of the things that happens when you get inundated with all of this metal language. And part of the responsibility, of course, is social networking. And while mentioning that, mm-hmm. Twitter. We're all a Twitter with the fact that we're, we've gone Twitter, man. Oz Network. That's, that's www slash dot slash, you know. I mean, www dot Twitter dot com slash Oz Network. Get up there and follow us. It is the portal into Oz World. And we're making all kinds of wonderful connections. Are people talking to us, Pete? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you, you know, not only through Twitter are they uh-huh. talking to us. And we're getting some very interesting responses. I've gone up, for example, and I'll say, uh, you, want a, you want a Sarah Palin poster? You want to take a look at old Sarah? Take a look at this. And I'll give them the URL for the Oz Mall page that has the Sarah Palin bumper stickers, amongst yep, others. Yep. And I'll do uh, sla- um, you know, hash mark Palin, which is the Palin group. Mm-hmm. For anybody who's talking about her, and or I'll do Afghanistan. Yes, we can't to slash mark Petraeus and Afghanistan and endless war. And people are clicking up. It's it's not a horde, ah. but it, we've had like thirty five people come up to the site that would you know wouldn't have seen it otherwise. And our download numbers are up slowly but surely. We're almost fourteen hundred a day now. 
Wow. Full downloads. Well, that's better than the Dow Jones average. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and a lot more interesting. Um, so, yeah, but also, if you go up to the website, you'll see that it's become, I love this term, much more robust. Oh, robust. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it's so good to be interactive at last. Oh, interactive at last. <laughs> I'm feeling so robust. Okay. And, and uh, we're giving you an opportunity, you the listeners, the Oz and Ears, the 2,000 or so people that dig us every day, right? Yeah. Um, a chance to comment on what you're hearing and start the, you know, start the dialogue. We got some very interesting, first it was like little stuff. All of a sudden, we're getting these screeds. And here's one. Oh, right? and here's one. Oh, All right. And this is from Aklem, right? And he says, here's, I'm going to read this in its in pretty much its entirety. Okay. As you both noted the other day about the lack of intellectual capacity of 30 or more percent of Americans that tend to believe any propaganda, general ignorance that is broadcast in their direction, and yet ironically seem to leech and purge any truth reality out of their brains at the same time. We know who they're talking about. You have obviously missed a very great marketing opportunity, and that is the possibility that you could also make your daily doses of truth available in USB flash drive suppository form. This is a, this is a great new entry portal. Just think this deployment method would enable more reality to reach deep into the consumers that remain oblivious to reality and have more time for it to be absorbed, better increasing overall comprehension and obtain enlightenment. No more ignorance washing in one ear and intelligence falling out the other. Imagine truth and reality actually being implanted directly into the core CPUs of the ignorant, you know, the ones that always talk out their asses. He says... They could be tweeted or podcast live <laughs> direct into the anal canal and regular BIOS flashes so that they do not uh, retain past confidence, confidence in the system propaganda from the Bush era and continue to blame current administration for problems that just because they finally realize there actually is an issue. It certainly did its job during the Bush era and kept them in power way too long. No doubt any positive progress will be given credit to future Republicans should Obama lose House of, or Senate control this November. Thank you, Aklem. Uh-huh. Well, I can only say, as George Tybiter would if you were here, I can only say that uh, using these suppositories uh, has made me much smarter and has uh, kept me up on uh, current affairs. And uh, actually, I'll tell you a secret, I, I haven't enjoyed anything quite so much for years. <laughs> Very <laughs> yeah. old gentleman, you, yeah, know. you know. It's now now you can actually sit on a problem rather than just think about it. And yeah. that you know, you can be a couch you can be an informed ouch potato. Ooh. Ooh. I love Paul Krugman. I love Maureen Dowd. That's all there is to it. I've read Maureen Dowd's Mad in Herds. I'm going to read you in detail uh, Paul Krugman's latest op-ed piece in The Grey Lady. Paul says, we need to pinch pennies these days. Don't you know we have a budget deficit? For months, that has been the word for Republicans and conservative Democrats who have ejected every suggestion that we do more to avoid deep cuts in public services and help the ailing economy. But these same politicians are eager to cut checks averaging $3 million each to the richest 120,000 people in the country. And the GOP is—this is me now—the GOP is supporting it. The Tea Party is being run by a couple of billionaires so that they're supporting it. Everybody's whose interests are not aligned with the rich are being used to line the pockets of the rich. A few, the Bill Gateses, the Warren Buffets, won't be taken in. They say, tax me more, I'm not paying enough. But they are few and far between. Krugman, what? 
You haven't heard about this proposal? Actually, you have. I'm talking about demands that we make all the Bush tax cuts, not just those for the middle class, permanent. Some background. Back in 2001, when the first set of Bush tax cuts was rammed through Congress, the legislation was written with a peculiar provision, namely that the whole thing would expire with tax rates reverting to the 2000 levels on the last day of 2010, which is, by the way, rapidly on the way. Why the cutoff date? In part, it was used to disguise the fiscal irresponsibility of the tax cuts. Lopping off the last year reduced the headline cost of the cuts because such costs are normally calculated over a 10-year period. It also allowed the Bush administration to pass the tax cuts using reconciliation. Yes, the same procedure that Republicans denounced when it was used to enact health reform while sidestepping rules designed to prevent the use of that procedure to increase long-run budget deficits. These are GOP deficits. They are the people that have run us into the red. Obviously, the idea was to go back at a later date and make those tax cuts permanent. But things didn't go according to plan. And now the witching hour is upon us. So, what's the choice now? The Obama administration wants to preserve those parts of the original tax cuts that mainly benefit the middle class, which is an expensive proposition in its own right, uh, but to let those provisions benefiting only people with very high incomes expire on schedule. Republicans, with the support of some conservative Democrats, blue sons of dogs, want to keep the whole thing. And there's a real chance that Republicans will get what they want. That's a demonstration, if anyone needed one, that our political culture has become not just dysfunctional, but deeply corrupt. That's right, deeply corrupt, and it's killing us. It's a cancer. It's killing us. What's at stake here? According to the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center, making all the Bush tax cuts permanent, as opposed to following the Obama proposal, would cost the federal government $680 billion in revenue over the next 10 years. Ah, for the sake of comparison, it took months of hard negotiations to get congressional approval for a mere $26 billion in desperately needed aid to state and local governments. No problem lining the ultra-rich with tax cuts, but try and keep teachers in the schoolrooms and police on the street and firefighters behind them. Well, now, uh-oh, that's what did, uh, John Boehmer said. That's just creating government jobs. I, I, it makes me thoroughly ill. And where would this $680 billion go, these tax cuts? Nearly all of it would go to the richest 1% of Americans, people with incomes of more than 500000 a year. Are, are any of the people taking this podcast or streaming this or listening under some circumstances part of that small cohort? But that's the least of it. The policy center's estimates say that the majority of the tax cuts would go to the richest one-tenth of one percent. Take a group of 1,000 randomly selected Americans and pick the one with the highest income. He's going to get the majority of all the group's tax breaks. Sounds fair to me. And the average tax break for those lucky few, the poorest members of the group, have annual incomes of more than $2 million, and the average member makes more than $7 million a year, would be $3 million over the course of the next decade. And oh yeah, drippy down, they're going to take that money and invest in productive tools and jobs. It's going to be, you know, the laugher curve. It's a laugher. And, and okay, so. That's that's where that's how much it would cost us over that decade. But you know something? It gets worse. How can this kind of 
giveaway be justified at a time when politicians claim to care about budget deficits? Well, history is repeating itself. The original campaign for the Bush tax cuts relied on deception and dishonesty. In fact, my first suspicions that we were being misled into invading Iraq were based on the resemblance between the campaign for war and the campaign for tax cuts the previous year. And sure enough, that same trademark deception and dishonesty is being deployed on behalf of tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans. So, for example, we're told that it's all about helping small business, but only a tiny fraction of small business owners would receive any tax break at all. And how many small business owners do you know who are making several million dollars a year? Or we're told that it's about helping the economy recover. But it's hard to think of a less cost-effective way to help the economy than giving money to people who already have plenty and aren't likely to spend a windfall. No, this has nothing to do with sound economic policy. Instead, as I said, it's about a dysfunctional and corrupt political culture in which Congress won't take action to revive the economy, pleads poverty when it comes to protecting the jobs of school teachers and firefighters, but declares cost no object when it comes to sparing the already wealthy even the slightest financial inconvenience. So far, the Obama administration is standing firm against this outrage. Let's hope that it prevails in its fight. Otherwise, it will be hard not to lose all faith in America's future. And I am beginning to lose that faith. I am Mr. Optimist, and I'm beginning to see all this poisonous misinformation taking hold. I'm beginning to see how stupidly the American people are responding. They have no sense of critical thinking. They are literally bloated with bad ads and bad food. Something has got to change. Hey, all of you Ozineers on Twitter. Uh, retweeting has its rewards, and we are going to give you an opportunity to win some cool stuff simply by helping us spread the word about Radio Free Oz on Twitter. If you aren't following us yet, go up to www.twitter.com slash Network and follow the show. See you on the inside. The administration is waving flags about taking troops out of Iraq and that things are stabilizing and the, the man that made it happen, David Petraeus, is now going to take care of Afghanistan and Pakistan and everything's going to be just hunky-dory. Well, according to the New York Times, insurgents unleashed a wave of coordinated attacks across Iraq last week in a demonstration of their ability to strike at will, offering their counterpoint to American aspirations of bringing the war in Iraq to a responsible end. In attacks in 13 towns and cities, from southernmost Basra to rest of Mosul in the north, insurgents deployed their full arsenal, hit-and-run shootings, roadside mines, and more than a dozen car bombs. The toll was in the dozens, but the symbolism underscored a theme of America's experience here. Its deadlines, including the August 31st date to end combat operations, have rarely reflected the tumultuous reality on the ground and have often been accompanied by a wave of insurgent attacks. The message the insurgents want to deliver to the Iraq people and the politicians is that we exist and we choose the time and place, said Wail Abdel Latif, a judge and former lawmaker. They are carrying out such attacks when the Americans are still here, so just imagine what they can do after the Americans leave. In coming days, the Obama administration will seek to portray the reduction in troops here to fewer than 50,000 as a turning point in seven years of invasion, occupation, and, of course, illegal war. 
Throughout the partial withdrawal, American officials have insisted that while work remains, Iraq's army and police force are ready to inherit sole control over security here. Military officials have said they believe that insurgents number only in the hundreds, and the military have issued a daily drumbeat of announcements that leaders and cadres in the insurgency have been arrested or killed in American-Iraqi operations. Well, last week's attacks, which killed at least 51 people, many of them police officers, were seemingly the insurgents' reply. Despite suggestions otherwise, the mostly Sunni insurgents proved their ability to undertake sophisticated attacks virtually anywhere in Iraq, capitalizing on the Shiite-led government's dysfunction and perceptions of American vulnerability. The countdown has begun to return Iraq to the embrace of Islam and its Sunnis with God's permission, said a statement on a prominent insurgent website last week. Oh, they need God's permission, as if they're sitting around waiting for some finger to come out of the clouds and say, yeah, get him and her and do this and that. Beginning with a car bombing of a police station in the northern Baghdad neighborhood of Kahira, the attacks seemed to sow chaos and confusion among the Iraqi police and soldiers who responded. Twice, police officers brawled with soldiers at the scene, where the blast sheared the top floors off six houses and bent streetlights like paper clips. In each confrontation, a shot was fired into the air before officers broke up the fight. The police kept angry residents away, but the residents in turn heckled them for their impotence in stopping a blast that cut like a scythe through the street. While dismembered bodies were pulled from the rubble, others remained entombed. You get millions of dinars in salaries and you won't let us help our families, one youth shouted. Another cried, you just take the money and don't care about us. An Iraqi investigator walked by. This is the state, he muttered. This is the government? Back from the shadows again Out where an engine's your friend Where the vegetables are green And you can be into the stream Yes, we're back from the shadows again Howdy, everybody! I'm the Whispering Squad. And I'm the Lonesome Bee Ticket. And I'm Artie Choke. And we're just a joke. And don't be afraid, little people, because we're just Holy Ground. Great. Yeah, but what about you, partner? What you doing today? Can't be much, Lonesome. Nobody's working. Nobody except us, and I'm <laughs> getting tired of standing here with these geeks a gawking at me. Now you keep it sweet, Pete. Listen here, Leaf Ed, I'm gonna Now, pluck now, your now boys. <laughs> Fighting's out of style, yeah. and fun's where the fair's at. In the future, that is. You can bet your roots, toots, it's tons of fun. And technical stimulation. That's what I And need. there's lots more of me where I come from. In government-inflicted simulation. The future can't wait. No yeah. place to hide. Yeah, so climb on a board. We're going inside. We're going back and to the, the shadows, shadows again. Out where an Indian's your friend Going down, going down Where the vegetables are green And you can pee right into the stream And that's important We're back from the shadow again This is by Jeffrey Smith And it appeared in the Huffington Post Five years ago, a 150-second TV broadcast changed our world Everyone everywhere owes a debt of gratitude to the man whose life it turned upside down in his effort to protect ours. 
On August 10th, 1998, eminent scientist Dr. Arpad Pustai dared to speak the truth. He had been an enthusiastic supporter of genetic engineering, working on cutting-edge safety research with genetically modified GM foods. But to his surprise, his experiments showed that GM foods were inherently dangerous. When he relayed his concerns during a short television interview in the UK, things got ugly. With support from the highest levels of government, biotech defenders quickly mobilized a coordinated attack campaign trying to distort and cover up the evidence. It worked for a while. But when an order of parliament lifted Dr. Pustai's gag order, the revelations touched off a media firestorm that ultimately kicked GM foods out of European supermarkets and derailed the industry's timetable to quickly replace virtually all food with genetically engineered alternatives. By early 1996, genetically modified tomatoes had been sold in U.S. supermarkets for more than a year, and GM soy, corn, and uh, cottonseed were about to be widely planted. But not a single peer-reviewed study on the safety of GM foods had been published, and there had not even been an agreed-upon protocol for answering the question, is this stuff safe? The UK government was about to change all that, and Hungarian-born chemist Dr. Arpad Pushtai was their man to do it. He beat out 27 competing scientists for a £1.6 million grant to develop a safety testing protocol. It was supposed to eventually be required for all GM. Pushtai's team was working with the vegetable equivalent of a James Bond car, complete with built-in weaponry. A potato was outfitted with an assassin gene from the snowdrop plant. The gene produced GNA lectin, a protein that kills insects. How did Dr. Pustai feel about the fact that his prestigious Rowett Institute was preparing to release killer potatoes into supermarkets worldwide? Fine, actually. He knew that the GNA lectin was harmless, not to insects, mind you, but to us mammals. Dr. Pustai was the world's leading expert on lectin proteins, and the GNA lectin was the one he knew most about. He had studied it for nearly seven years. But when Dr. Pustai fed the GM potato to rats using his new safety testing protocol, he got a shock. Nearly every system in the rats' bodies were adversely affected, several in just 10 days. Their brains, livers, and testicles were smaller, while their pancreases and intestines were enlarged. The liver was partially atrophied. Organs related to the immune system, including the thymus and the spleen, well, they were just like completely out of control. Their white blood cells responded to an immune challenge more slowly, indicating immune system damage. In all cases, the GM potato created proliferative cell growth in the stomach and small and large intestines. The lining was significantly thicker than controls. Although no tumors were detected, such growth can be precancerous. Dr. Pustai and his team knew that the GNA lectin had not caused the damage. Other rats had been fed natural potatoes spiked with the same amount of GNA insecticide and that the GM spud produced, and they did fine. The control group fed natural potatoes without added lectin also, and they were in good shape. And in previous experiments, Dr. Pustai had fed rats an enormous quality of lectin, about 700 times the amount produced in the GM potato. Again, with no effect. The damage to the rats, it appears, came rather from the unintended side effects of the genetic engineering process. These effects, from gene insertion and cell cloning, may include massive collateral damage in a plant's DNA. With hundreds of thousands of mutations, important natural genes can be inadvertently turned off, permanently turned on, deleted, reversed, scrambled, moved, fragmented, or changed in their activity level. So, 
That's part one of the GM horror story. Proof that you can't drone alone, Dave. You know those drones that are supposed to be the future of warfare? Or what I call the future of cowardice. A software malfunction caused the Navy to lose control of one for half an hour earlier this month, letting it joyride over Washington, D.C. The charmingly named 31-foot-long MQ-8B Fire Scout Vertical Takeoff and Landing Unmanned Aerial Vehicle, ooh, there's, there's a name, was flying at an altitude of 2,000 feet on August 2nd when the Navy completely lost control of the craft due to, they say, a software issue. Uh Uh-huh. It continued, guided only by its own probably evil robot brain, for about (laughs) half an hour, flying 23 miles into restricted airspace. The Navy reestablished control when the drone was just 40 miles from the nation's capital. That's missile range, Mm, baby. Sure is. Thankfully, the incident has prompted the Navy to ground all six of its Fire Scout drones while they figure out what happened. That may take an eternity. The Times says that the Navy did not describe the scene inside the ground control station as operators sought to reestablish communication with the drone, but it certainly was an oh-shit moment. <laughs> it certainly must have been one. Oh, man. Yeah. There, there's, there's an armed drone <laughs> helicopter flying over D.C. Yeah. on its own. Yes, and what is it doing there anyway, yeah. even 40 miles away? What are they testing this sucker for? This is the East Coast. It's populated by millions of people from border to border what are we doing here now i understand okay yes. if we were developing fire control drones for for forest fires so you don't want to like you know kill smokies and such where you can they can come in and do this and sure. they can do that and i'm all for it i'm not anti-drone i'm just saying don't use drones in order to kill people at a distance and don't let them fly you know on their own <laughs> evil-minded robot brain over yeah. dc well you know i have nothing against helicopters either until they started you know coming down over my house wherever i live to see if I was growing any pot in my backyard, get away from here. You know, I mean, it was awful. Yeah, and awful. you know, I'm not, I'm not any more, so, any more happy to know that 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 helicopter that's spying on me doesn't have anybody inside. That's even worse. It's in a even sense. worse and weirder and yes. weirder. Well, somebody's got to undertake to get these things under control. <laughs> control. Oh shit! <laughs> It really does make me wonder. I thought it was the 21st century, but there's whole parts of this country that are still living back in the 12th century fighting the crusade. I don't know where they get their information. I don't know. Maybe it comes in from an orifice I don't use when it comes to educating myself. Appearing before the Republican women of Bossier, Louisiana with Senator David Vitter, Representative John Fleming cast the November elections as a choice between godlessness and Christianity. He also called bipartisanship impossible. How about bisexuality? We have two competing worldviews here, and there is no way that we can reach across the aisle. One is going to have to win, Fleming said. That's upsetting. It really is, you know. Uh, I thought there was this thing called compromise, but I think that's something he believes the devil created in his laboratory. 
We are either going to go down the socialist road and become like Western Europe and create, I guess, really a godless society, an atheist society, or we're going to continue down the other pathway where we believe in freedom of speech, individual liberties, that we remain a Christian nation. So we're going to have to win that battle. We're going to have to solve that argument before we can once again reach across and work together on things. Oh, I see. So... Uh, socialist Europe or is atheist and there's no freedom of speech, no individual liberties, and none of them can call themselves a Christian nation, although probably by percentage they have more Christians than we do. But hey, why let facts get in the way of a brain-assed ramble, huh? Fleming contended that the Republicans might take 60 seats in November and argued that the road to economic recovery is, here we go now, get ready, this is so simple. It's to rescind new banking regulations, make the Bush tax cuts permanent across the board. We've got to change the way we do things, he said. We need to restore the Bush tax cuts or actually make them permanent. We need to cut the capital gains tax. We need to take regulations off the backs of business and allow banks to once again lend. And I got a strong feeling that our economy will snap back very quickly. Well, maybe not back. Maybe it'll just plain snap. Governments, your friends, you see That's what I have to say, or they will bury me Don't you try to criticize And don't you ever try to talk about their lies I don't know what you've been told But last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean And disagree and not have to face the guillotine But if it's your head in the basket Then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution Patriot Act is the riot act with the PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. King and his army wing, they are hell-bent on the conquest Our enemies on bended knees, they're gonna see it always soon Because the freedom that they steal from us, they try to export overseas And now our former enemies are free to live a life of tyranny the same as you or me And it's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime, whoa If you heard that plate is gonna Safely kept away from us, but we never have to worry if we're 
guilty or not Because you stick them in a cell and they are soon forgotten And they're out of sight and out of mind and out of luck But if it's your head in the basket Then you just picked the wrong side of the revolution Before you choose a side to fight Forget about who's wrong or right If you like your neck, you best as heck start Rooting for the winner This brave new world is knocking at your door And you better let it in The Constitution's evolution never made a contribution To the revolutionary man It's a crime To speak your mind And it's a crime I'm on the Skype with Anna Hamilton, who is a songwriter living out in the northwest corner of Mendocino County in the Emerald Triangle. She is the host of Rant and Rave on KMUD Radio. That's K-M-U-D. You can catch it on the web. And she put together a, a conference in March called The Economic Impact of Marijuana Legalization. And Anna, it's a pleasure to have you on the phone. Thank you, Peter Bergman. Well, tell me a little bit about from where you're calling me. Give me some sort of, uh, place me geographically, okay? Uh, People always say, well, what town do you live in? (laughs) And I just laugh. (laughs) Uh, I live in one of those places you just can't imagine. If you live in the city, uh, you you would just see a road going to nowhere and wonder who would ever be out there. And there are yet are thousands of us. And uh, I'm on solar panels. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I forego cutting firewood for a propane heat, but other than that, uh, it's a rural lifestyle, yeah. what they call prim- primitive. Primitive? Well, I don't know. I, I lived out in Mendocino County and cut wood and used propane, too, and flash heaters. It's primitive in one sense, but it's not, it's not without art and feeling and depth. I mean, you know what I mean? That's, it's certainly not that. So, uh Okay, let's talk about this conference you had on um, in, in March on the economic implications of the marijuana legalization. Are they going to legalize marijuana in um, in, in California? Do you think think it's going to pass? Well, that's a big yeah. leap. Yeah, I'd rather save that for the end. Okay, a good. Number one, a number one, I have no idea. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the 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 forum I put on was called "What's After Pot: The Economic Impacts of Marijuana Legalization." Okay. And I realized that no one was confronting the collapsing prices, uh, wholesale prices of marijuana, since 1996, when 215 legalizing medical marijuana passed and gave people uh, it relieved a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a round growing pot since medical marijuana was now legal you theoretically won't be arrested for having a seed in the floor of your car mm-hmm. or a leaf on your shoe or in your sock or something so a lot of people were emboldened to um, you know uh, because the, the, the medical demand is very strong and legitimate but the recreational demand is also very large and also I believe legitimate so 
there's been what's called abuse of the 215 privilege by people who want to enjoy recreational marijuana. So uh, to give you an example of uh, what, of what's happened, uh, the overproduction of, of, of uh, marijuana has flooded the market and driven the price down. The, the ability to grow pot in your closet with a light or a couple of lights is so uh, prevalent that the PG&E spokesperson for Humboldt County said the year 2015 passed, electrical consumption went up 30%. Oh, boy. (laughs) In Humboldt County. Just in Humboldt County, which is not a big urban area to begin with. I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but uh, 2015 passed at the same time that the Enron Energy uh, uh, squeeze happened, and I think that it was a crime of opportunity when this demand spiked. They thought they were going to mask this uh, turn off the generator and cause a brownout and drive the price up scam that they had going on. Yeah, uh, the energy implications for indoor marijuana growing are so huge. I think they go all the way back to that. But um, that being said, uh, there's so much marijuana grown in Humboldt County. Uh, some of my neighbors, we just sat around and calculated based on our experience in different neighborhoods around here and estimate that every Californian would have to smoke 36 pounds a year to smoke all the pot that's grown in Humboldt alone. Well, let's and start we, right now. With that, you know, that's our duty. Start right now. <laughs> yeah, come on, 36 pounds, you know, one joint at a... And the thing about the... Go ahead, please. Yep patriotic american and start smoking but the thing is our economy's going going to hell but on the other hand the quality of the marijuana and its potency has increased so remarkably that 36 pounds of what's being grown today is like a ton of what we used to try to grab out of those cellophane bags back in the 60s that came up from mexico you know at five dollars a lid you're right yeah i mean there was more soil Than that which could soil you. So, okay, the price has gone down. Uh, People in in the area, uh, there's an economic impact. So what about, what is, what's after pot? What is the economic impact of of, of the potential legalization as you see it? Well, uh, I kind of answered my own question, what's after pot? Cannabis. Yeah. Cannabis is after pot. Uh-huh. The medical research and the use of cannabis and the tremendous value in the raw product for research purposes is enormous. It's a boon waiting for our universities and for our young people to go in and do. Yeah. Uh, that <clears throat> That is what's after pot. Uh, whether the initiative passes or not, I have no idea. Yeah. It, it's like asking yourself... What's eternity? What happened before the Big Bang? Well, you can come up with any answer you want. It's that deep, huh? <laughs> you sure you yeah. haven't? You sure you haven't been smoking pot as you considered not, this conundrum? Not before five o'clock. <laughs> not before, but, but you know what we say here? It's five o'clock somewhere on the internet. <laughs> Four twenty. Four twenty. Yeah, right. As the sun sets down behind the the madrones. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Now uh, I understand that at this conference you had growers, you had people from. Uh, local government was there, was county government there also was the media there who attended the conference how many people and 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 what was the general feeling there well, we're calling the first one the forum yeah okay and that was my joke uh, funny thing happened to me on the way to the forum I'll bet it did yeah 
a funny thing did happen. The AP wire service called and covered it and got international press within 12 hours. I was internationally famous. Wow. About Unintended time. consequences, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, I knew that uh, if I brought the subject up that, that the community was pregnant with the need to get this topic on the table. What I didn't realize is that the whole country and the rest of the world is looking at Humboldt. Uh, for example, in Europe, the countries that had, like Denmark, that had had legal marijuana and then made it and then criminalized it again, have had a big influx of gangs and criminal activity replacing what previously had been a mom-and-pop production. Mm. And uh, there are surveys that have come out in the Netherlands that have said that uh, mom-and-pop production is the least likely to, to have criminal influences in it. Right. And would be the preferred model for producing pot in the Netherlands. And uh, uh, so we... A funny thing did happen after the forum is this tremendous media uh, engorgement on the topic, and we have been buried in news, news people, TV people. I uh, get to host a wonderful international correspondent from Le Mans, Paris, mm-hmm. BBC, the German version of the BBC, and, and this was such a surprise to our community because... This community here has post-traumatic stress in the drug war. And at first, it's just like every other marijuana topic. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Except the consequences uh, give us statistics like the highest youth mortality rate in the state, uh, uh, the highest suicide rate in the nation. Uh, You know, it's really a drag. Uh, You have a high school with 300 kids, and you have two deaths a year in it. The compounding traumatic... um, uh, grief is never dealt with, uh, and we have a culture of silence. When I got here in 82, it was, hi, come on over to my place and see my plants and meet the babies and pet the dogs. And now you can't even get in the gate of most people's houses. We're so withdrawn. And just like a victim of, of, of uh, a, a spousal a domestic violence, uh, who's the least likely to leave the abuser, the people of, that have been the victim of the drug war are the least likely to lead the conversation about legalizing marijuana, not only because it may not appear to be in their interest to legalize marijuana, but because they are so conditioned and fearful. Yeah. And because I'm kind of a com- comic and I have a, a big mouth and my show is called Rant and Rave and I like to go over the top and I wanted to do a mild form of shock jock talk radio in a very politically correct arena, uh, you know, I felt like I could open this topic. What I didn't expect was to become considered a mouthpiece. And <laughs> so the, the, the to get to the forum, I didn't uh, uh, try to organize the marijuana community for an, a meeting. Um, Somebody said that would be like herding cats. <laughs> uh, I called, I just cold called all of the people in the blue section of the government of the phone, in the phone book that I thought had anything to do with economic development, social uh, services, education. And uh, fortunately, a supervisor here in Humboldt County 
uh, is on the California County Associations of Governments, the uh, empowered body to administrate for statewide for county uh, government issues. And he's the co-chair of the Marijuana Policy Committee. That's terrific. No, so, really, that's really getting getting the gov right there at the table, and that's very important. They really can't great. claim they can't claim ignorance if they have a rep there, you know, getting firsthand experience. That's right. We had guys from from the supervisor. We had people from REDEC, Redwood Regional Economic Development Commission. We had people from the Harbor Commission. We had people from the junior college, uh, from the university, uh, K through twelve county education. Uh, Seroptimus, uh, Rotary, Kiwanis, uh, a lot, a, a good showing of the young adults who have started businesses in uh, uh, value-added products and services related to providing the supplies for agricultural production up here. And that's a multi, multi-million dollar business here. Anna, um, I'm going to stop this section right now because uh, we're going to do this in two parts. So we're going to okay. come back. Okay, we're going to come back, and we're going to. What I'd like to do is continue with a, a, a further elucidation of what went down at this first marijuana forum. Uh, I've got. Oh, Groovy. Yeah, and I'm I've got. I'm just getting used to this online thing, and I <laughs> and these clips are usually three to five minutes, and I'm usually just used yeah. to rambling on. Well, we make we we don't do sound bites. We do sound splits. Okay, talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. Amidst all of this, you know, analysis of the empire and the double dip depression and all the other stuff, there's also we're in love with space. We love space news. Love space news. NASA has announced that the Kepler space mission that is looking for signs of other Earth-like planets has discovered two new planets and possibly a third orbiting the same star. Could one of them be Krypton? I hope that's so. where Superman is, and we really need him. Yeah, and, and, and this means it's a solar system. So there's three, three of them going around three the same of them. star. It's a system. Yep, yep. Okay. NASA scientists said this is the first time multiple planets have been discovered transiting the same star. First time, Dave. Really? Really. Hmm. The findings come from data gathered by the Kepler spacecraft, which was launched in 2009. The spacecraft has been keeping an eye on a patch of space for indications of Earth-sized planets moving around stars similar to the Earth's sun. It's a good idea, you know. Since its launch, the Space Observatory has reported tiny blips from more than 150,000 stars. But these are the first two or three that are part of what appears to be a real solar system. Wow, that is some drone they got out there. Yeah, that, that a big drone. Yeah. That a healthy drone. Yeah. That, 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 that's a drone that isn't running off some evil robot brain. Just hanging out there looking at stars. Yes, those are the drones the we, we I want to pay for those drones, <laughs> right? I l- love those pictures from outer space so much that came in back in the 70s when the first uh, flights went out. You saw the surfaces of these planets. Imagine what's going to happen next. What's, what's, what's going to happen? Next? I really don't know. Did but NASA say what was going to happen? No, they, they're silent right now. They're uh-huh. not. They're not making. But we're 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 tuned in and waiting. I'm waiting. Are you calling out there, ET? Continuing with part two of the uh, GMO horror story by Jeffrey Smith, and this is about Dr. Arpad Pustai, who was a big researcher in genetically modified foods, and then discovered that they weren't doing anybody any good at all. So, Dr. Pustai wanted to find out precisely what went wrong in his potatoes. He had been he'd been given the 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 job of setting up a protocol for testing the safety of GMO and found out 
that uh, his genetically modified potatoes were having negative effects on lab animals. And it wasn't the lectin, which was part of the uh, GMO process to kill insects. It had to do with the very GMO process itself. So he wanted to find out precisely what what went wrong with his potatoes. So he asked the government to provide more funds to conduct follow-up studies. But Prime Minister Tony Blair, his ministers, and his entire political party were all unapologetic biotech cheerleaders trying desperately to promote them to a skeptical public. Exposing problems with GMO technology wasn't on the government's agenda. Additional funds were not forthcoming. The UK television show World in Action asked Dr. Pustai for an interview. With permission from his institute's director, he spoke generally about his concerns with GMOs based on his finding. He was careful not to reveal the details of his study, which was a still unpublished. His 152nd interview was aired on August 10, 1998. The European press went wild, and Dr. Pustai was propelled to the status of hero at the Rowlett Institute. This is where he worked. The Institute's director, Professor Philip James, took over all the publicity efforts, described the research as a huge advance in science, and wrote in a press release, a range of carefully controlled studies underlie the basis of Dr. Pustai's concerns. On the afternoon of August 11th, the next day, two phone calls were allegedly placed from the UK Prime Minister's office forwarded through the Institute's receptionist to Professor James. Dr. Pustai's hero status was revoked. The next morning, the director suspended Dr. Pustai after 35 years of service. He was silenced with threats of a lawsuit, and his 20-member research team was disbanded. The government never implemented their GMO safety testing protocol. The Institute released numerous statements, some contradicting each other, others misrepresenting the research, but all designed to discredit Dr. Pustai and the implications of his findings. Seven months and one heart attack later, Dr. Pustai's gag order was lifted when the parliament invited him to testify. As the true details of the study began to emerge, the media responded. About 750 articles on GMOs were pumped out within the month. Biotech advocates swung into action. According to a leaked document obtained by The Independent on Sunday... Three government ministers prepared an astonishingly detailed strategy for spinning and mobilizing support for GM foods. Quote, one of the ministers' main concerns, said the report, was to rubbish research by Dr. Arpad Pustai. The minister's campaign relied on the participation of certain scientists, including those in the Royal Society, who could voice uncompromising support for GMOs. According to the newspaper, many of these scientists, while promoted as independent, had received compensation directly or indirect from the biotech companies. The independent admonished the government's actions as a cynical public relations exercise. But the spin campaign was too little, too late. By the end of April 1999, just 10 weeks after Dr. Pustai's gag order was lifted, the public's distrust of GMOs reached a tipping point. Use of GM ingredients had become a marketing liability. Within a single week, nearly every major food company committed to stop using GMOs in Europe. With his data finally returned to him, Dr. Pustai and a colleague submitted their paper to the renowned scientific journal, The Lancet. Its editor, Richard Horton, told The Guardian, there was intense pressure on The Lancet from all quarters, including the Royal Society, to suppress publication. The paper passed the peer review and was set to appear on October 15, 1999. On October 13, Horton received a call from a senior member of the Royal Society. According to The Guardian, Horton said the phone call began in a very aggressive manner. He said, 
He was called immoral and accused of publishing Dr. Pustai's paper, which he knew to be untrue. Towards the end of the call, Dr. Horton said the caller told him that if he published the Pustai paper, it would have implications for his personal position as editor. Although Horton declined to name the caller, the Guardian identified him as Peter Lachman, the former vice president and biological secretary of the Royal Society and president of the Academy of Medical Scientists. Lachman has been one of the co-signers on the Royal Society's open letter attacking Pustai. He also had extensive financial ties to the biotech industry. In spite of his threats, the Lancet went forward into publication. In the years since the controversy, Dr. Pustai has given more than 200 lectures around the world on GMOs. He has been commissioned by the German government, academic publications, and others to do comprehensive analysis of GMO safety studies. In 2005, he received the Whistleblower Award from the Federation of German Scientists, and in 2009, he and his wife, Dr. Susan Bardoz, also an expert on GMO safety and formerly of the Rowlett Institute, were presented with the Stuttgart Peace Prize for their tireless advocacy for independent risk research, as well as their courage, scientific integrity, and their undaunted insistence on the public's right to know the truth. Well, what a wonderful story, except for the fact that GMO foods exist in the American supermarkets. They're not allowed in Europe, but they're allowed here. It makes you wonder, why don't we wake up and pay attention? Why don't we ask more of the people who put the food on our table? Well, so comes to the end, the 75th Radio Free Oz Show. For those of you who've heard all 75 or something very much like it, go up onto the, uh, the Radio Free Oz website, go to today's show, into the comments section, tell us what you think, tell us what it's been like experiencing that much Oz. We'd, we'd really love to hear from you. And as usual, as you know, has been our way, we end the show with a touch of tang. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Well, David, I, have you got, a, you got some tangulation yeah, for I us? I got a little tangulation here because it's a new, uh, a new month warning uh, here, yes, it and is. Uh, Lee, uh, Lee Ho. Oh, by the way, Lee, talking yes. about new months, I just want to say is yeah. that for the rest of the week, you'll be hearing the best of August, July, June, and May. You can dig the whole thing all week. Just put your put your feet up somewhere and listen and listen to what we've been going through for the last five months with you, with you, indeed. This is Lee Ho. Uh, his seventh moon poem for September. Cold stars glitter around the Milky Way. Dewdrops gather on a plate. Last flowers open at the tips of twigs. Orchids fade in the empty, grieving gardens. The night sky is paved with clouds like jade. Lotus leaves in the water are like green coins. On her bamboo mat, she feels the chill through her thin skirt as the wind beats up at dawn and the dipper curves down the sky. Ooh, let's curve down with the dipper. Say thank you for that. Radio Free Oz. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, and here's my co-host across from me, David Osborne. Got through another month, 75 shows. Catch you at 80. <laughs> <laughs>